get uh, started in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for today. Thanks for your goodness to us and pray that you would open your word to us now as we study it. Thanks for a gorgeous morning. And thanks for bringing us out here safely together to study your word in Christ's name. Amen. Um, as I mentioned, we're going to probably end our spiritual warfare discussion today unless uh, Sammy asks too many questions. <laughs> Notice I did that when she had her mouth full of donuts so she couldn't respond. So that's why you do it. All right. Um, but hopefully we'll get through the, the, the thing on spiritual warfare today. And then we're going to move on to the doctrine of man and sin. And some of the things we're going to look at there is the origin of man. We're, we'll actually look at creation a little bit. We're going to look at um, you know, the spirit, soul, body of man. We're going to look at sin. Where did it come from? Um, how does it affect us? What is it? So all those things will be covered in the next 13-week segment. And then the doctrine of salvation. That will be a fun one. But anyways, we're going to finish this up today, hopefully. And um, when we look at spiritual warfare, just, uh, you know, hopefully this has come out in our last 12 weeks, I think 11 weeks we've been studying this. Nowhere in the scripture does it tell us as believers to go out and attack Satan directly. It doesn't tell us to go find a demon and whack on it. Um, it doesn't tell us to go chase them down. It doesn't tell us to go find them. Um, and that's because we run into them all of the time. We don't need to go find them. They seem to find us. Um, we don't need to go attack them. And, and really, there's no mention in Scripture of us directly going and finding as, as, a, as a purpose or as a um, matter, of course, of our spiritual life to go find and attack demons directly. Rather, what we do is we defend ourselves against them. For example, in Scripture, we're told in Ephesians 6, 12 through 18... We're to stand firm. What do you think? And we're going to talk about spiritual war, uh, armor here, so we're going to do a really good study of this passage. What do you think when it means? What do you think the Bible means when it says to stand firm? To not give in. All right. So the assumption there is what's happening to you. You're being tempted. You're being tested. You're being attacked. Some there's some kind of conflict going on, and we're told to stand firm in that conflict. All right. It doesn't tell us to go find a demon. It tells us to stand firm against the onslaughts of Satan. And the reason for that, quite honestly, we've talked about this, is we don't know what Satan is up to and what he's behind anyways. We just really don't know that. We know that he's out there. We know what he's doing. We know he's busy. But to know that, well, Satan is behind this and Satan is behind that and Satan is over here doing this or some demon is that, we, we don't know that. We just know they're there. So trying to direct them, attack them directly without really knowing if they're there or not is really not a very good use of our energies. But we are told to stand firm. We're told to be alert. First Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant. The idea there being sober is to be in your right mind, to be clear-headed, to be clear-thinking. And be vigilant. What does the idea of being vigilant mean? Watching. Because you're Satan as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. Um, part of our defense is to be vigilant about what's going on around us because Satan is there and being watchful. And if you're sober and vigilant and watchful, what you're doing is you're keeping an eye out for temptations that come your way, for trials that come your way. You're alert as to what's going on out there. You're not insensitive to that. Um, I remember walking through Glacier National Park, and it's only after I did this that I found out I shouldn't have probably done it. But I went on a hike by myself for about 14 miles. And uh, there's bears there. Yeah, and bears don't like it when you turn around a corner and they're there, you know, taking it easy and they surprise, you surprise them. They usually come after you. Um, I didn't know that, of course, until after I went on the hike all by myself. Um, but they say, always take somebody with you. But the whole, even when I was doing that by myself, there was in the back of my mind, you know, now be careful and watch out because there are wild animals here. Bears, <laughs> in particular. And most of the time the bears don't bother you unless you bother them. But there are bears here, so watch it. And that's like us in our spiritual life. We need to be careful about what's going on around us. We need to understand that Satan is there and that the, you know, we're fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil out there. We need to be careful. And we're going to talk about that in our next course. And we need to be careful about that. And some of the ways that you're alert and vigilant is you watch out for those situations that you know tempt you. Right? We all have those. We all have different ones. So if you're in a 
you know, one of the one of the great, um, I guess, strategies if you want to in your spiritual life is keep yourself out of situations where you could be tempted or tested. You don't need to go there. You know, if you have a problem with uh, shopping, don't shop. Don't go to the malls. You know, don't do that. If you have a problem with gossip, hang up the phone. You know, things like that. Watch out for those things. Be alert, be sober, because Satan is out there like a rapacious lion wanting to tear you apart. So you need to be careful. And in, in fact, that's, Satan used that of himself in Job, right? God asked him, where have you been? He says, oh, walking to and fro and up and down. All right? So he even uses the same um, metaphor of himself. Where to resist the devil? What does it mean to resist the devil? How do you resist the devil? You don't give in. You, it's the same way Jesus did. You use Scripture. You resist the temptation. You, you refuse to cave in. Now, that's hard to do, isn't it, sometimes? But that's why you need to be sober and vigilant because you need, if you know He's out there, when He comes, you can resist Him. And the Bible tells us to resist the devil. James 4, 7, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. However, it says the first part of that verse, Submit yourself therefore to God. If you don't submit yourself to God, resisting the devil isn't going to help you any. You need to submit to God because God is the one who's more powerful than Satan. And 1 Peter 5, 9, whom resists steadfast in the faith. Satan is talking about resisting him. And, you know, part of resisting Satan, it's nothing more secret than to be people of the Word, to be people in prayer, to be people that walk in the Spirit. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Day by day, hour by hour, you have a conscious knowledge of God is there with you. You pray to Him throughout the day. When you see things, you see things from a spiritual perspective. And by doing that, it opens you up to being alert and careful about what's going on around you. And you see those things usually before they come and get you. Most Christians, most young Christians, they don't understand how this temptation business works. We're going to talk about that. But most of the time, they don't know the temptation is there until they're well on their way to succumbing to it. And as you grow in the faith, hopefully you get to the point where you see Satan, you know how he operates generally, and you're prepared for it before it happens. And part of that is being in the Word, being in prayer, asking God for protection. The disciples' prayer, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. That's Matthew 6.13. Deliver us from the evil one. Some translations have deliver us from evil, but the word there, ha paneran, is the evil one. Who's the evil one? Satan. Satan. Pray for deliverance from Satan. And, and that should be a general prayer of all of us every day, right? Lord, don't let me fall into temptation today. Don't let... Satan, get advantage of me. Don't let me find myself in a spot that I don't want to be in. And that's something we can do every day. Yeah. A couple questions. You said... Everybody's... See, I'm trying to diffuse this before it gets out of hand, but that didn't work, so I... Um, you said that it's not easy or possible for us to know when it's Satan, so... And decide... Not all the time. Right. Because he does come to steal, kill, and destroy. And when we see some obvious evidence of one of those three or any of all of them, um, couldn't that be pretty much attributed to... It could be. It could be just evil men. It could be just evil men. So if it's evil men, wouldn't that be Satan working through them to make that be the case? Um, Yo... Yeah, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, yes in the sense that Satan is behind all evil, right? Yeah. No in the sense that does Satan cause every bad person to do bad things? Okay. No. Right. We, I don't know. You know, when, when somebody, you know, when you have somebody does a vicious crime, murder, let's say, is that Satan behind it? Well, ultimately, Satan is the murderer from the beginning. So there's a sense in which, yeah, it started with him. But was Satan behind that particular murder? Did he make that guy commit that murder? Probably not. It's probably that guy that did it. Because it is the world, the flesh, of the devil. and the devil, and 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 our own fallenness. That's the, the and that's the flesh. And right. and really, our biggest enemy in all of that is really our flesh, because that's where Satan gets his hooks into us and causes us to do things. Now, there are some obvious times when we know Satan is up to it. Like if you look at a false system of religion, who's right. behind that? Right. 
Well, that's Satan behind that. That's the example. Yeah, so that it's it's fairly clear. But just because evil things happen doesn't necessarily mean that Satan is causing it. Now there are some that he's going to actually do, right? I mean, when you look at the end times, the beast, the false prophet, you know that Satan is behind those. But we don't always know that. Okay, and the other question, you might have answered it the Sunday I couldn't be here about the binding on earth and binding in heaven thing. Did you cover that already? Uh-huh. It's the next slide. Because, um, see, I knew she was going to ask that, see. We didn't collude on this. Um, I knew she was going to ask that. So I was ready for it. All right? One of the things that, that you hear a lot in the, war, in, in the spiritual warfare movement is, well, we're going to bind Satan. And in fact, I've been in services where the person who's speaking so-called bound Satan um, kind of thing. And so the question is, well, what is, what is that and is it biblical, basically? You know, what is it and is it biblical? The, the idea of binding Satan is somehow um, we praying that God would not allow Satan to ha- do what Satan wants to do. We, we bind him. And in some, um, some of the circles... They even would go so far as to say, as a child of God, we have the authority ourselves to bind Satan. Well, Satan, the binding of Satan, is, or, or the hinted binding of Satan, is only seen twice in the Scripture. One of them is in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 20, who binds the devil? Michael. Well, God does, but Michael binds Satan, and he's cast for a thousand years into the bottomless pit, the Abyssos. So that's a binding. Now that's a real binding of Satan. What does it mean when he is bound there? He is not loose. All right. He is not, and, and it even uses that phrase. After the thousand years, he will be loosed, hinting that he is bound and his activities are constrained. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Revelation 20. Thank you. Revelation 20 talks about the binding of Satan. Prior to the beginning of the millennium, Satan is bound in the bottomless pit. By, by intimation, his demons are bound as well. All right? Which means that Satan is not operative in the millennial kingdom. He is not out tempting people. He is not out doing anything. He is bound. He is in a place of confinement. If he's in a place of confinement, how is it he's able to lead people astray? He doesn't until he's loose. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the thousand years, he is loose for a short time, and he goes out to deceive. So during the millennium, it is possible for people to receive Christ because humans are still absolutely they're still being born. We're going to talk about all of that in eschatology, but yes. Does it become easier for the world because he is bound? Well, what do you what would you think? His demons are bound. Satan is bound. There's not the, the, the one thing about it. There's not a lot of false, there's not false religion around, right? There's only one true faith. Everybody, but everybody still has to make that decision. And what do you know about the heart of man? It's desperately wicked. Only those who alive, only those who are in, who have died for that. We'll we'll sort all of that out. Yeah, we'll sort all of that out. As, as you go into the millennium, there's going to be some people alive in their mortal bodies. They've survived the tribulation. They're going to enter the millennium. They're going to have children. You know, they're going to have children. They're going to have children. So there'll be children being born. It'll be a time of peace, prosperity. There won't be any false religion. But there still needs to be a decision on an individual's part. Do I or do I not take Christ as my King, as my Lord, as my Savior? And... As the Bible says, at the end of the millennium, there's going to be millions of people that don't, have never done it. They'll be deceived. And, and it shows, what it shows you there, if anything, if you go home and think about this, it shows you the, the other depravity of the human heart. After a thousand years of absolute peace on earth, goodwill towards men, people still refuse. They still refuse to bow the knee. And it shows the deceptiveness of Satan was able to come out of the bottomless pit and deceive people that for a thousand years have known nothing but peace and prosperity that they should overthrow the king. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And you got all the psychoceramics, which are the crackpots, the, the psychologists that tell you, look, you know, our problem is, you know, our, our environment. You know, you get a good environment, people will turn out basically okay. You know. All right, God will say, okay, I'll give you a thousand years of okay. 
No wars. No famine. No murders. You know, none of that stuff. And guess what happens at the end of a thousand years? You're not any different. You've not changed. Yeah. Again, just in case I would miss this, um, people who died will be glorified. Yes. Okay. What about the people from the rapture that didn't? They'll 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 be there as well. They'll be glorified as well. <laughs> I think you're happy that you're not going to have to live through the rap, the whole millennium in your mortal body. You know, that's a good thing. Yeah. But we'll sort all that out. Okay. That's really not for this time. We'll, we'll get through that. Um. But that's, Satan is bound there. And then the other place where he is bound is here where it hints at binding is in Matthew 12, 29. So let's go there and let's look at that. i get my other specs on. i got these for another eight weeks until I fix my eyes for real. All right, what's, the basic idea is what's happening in Matthew 12. Well, in Matthew 12, you have the confrontation between Christ and the religious leaders. And what has Christ been doing up to this point? Well, he's been doing signs and wonders and miracles. And why is he doing that? He's doing that to validate validate his message. I am God. I'll heal this person. I am God. I can raise this person from the dead. I am God. I can cast this demon out. And he's trying to give them an understanding that he is who he says he is by the miracles and the works that he does. All right? Um, and let's start in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So what was the problem with this man? And that caused him to be what? Blind and mute. And what did Christ do? He healed him. He healed him. cast the demon out. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? The people were amazed. Can this be the Messiah? Can he be? So what was the Pharisees' conclusion? Verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The religious leaders got together, analyzed the information. What did they come up with? This guy's of devil. He's of Satan. And why is that? Well, Jesus didn't fit their conceived notions of what Jesus should be. See, they had in their minds what the Messiah ought to be and look like, and Jesus didn't fit that mold. Therefore, he... Since they obviously couldn't be wrong, Jesus had to be wrong. They wouldn't, even, they wouldn't even consider the remote possibility that they had their wires crossed anywhere along there. They were right, so therefore Jesus could not be of God because he was not of them. If he was God, he would have been of them. And he's not of God because he's not of them. And so they said, well, he's casting out Satan by being Beelzebub. And Beelzebub was an ancient god of that time who was the prince of demons, the lord of the flies. And we find him back in First or Second Kings mentioned. The God of Ekron. Um, and so they said, well, the reason he can cast out the demons is because he's their Lord. He's the head of the demons. He's demonic himself. Of course he can cast them out. And Jesus responded. He said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. In other words, if I'm casting out the demons, if I'm going through the land casting out demons right and left and healing people then I am, if what you say is true about me being of Beelzebub, then I'm really fighting against my own ends, right? That doesn't make any sense. If my end is to enslave men, I'm not going to unenslave them. That doesn't make any sense. So he shows the utter um, stupidity of their, their conclusion. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? What's, what is he saying there? Well, the Jewish, they had exorcists in Jewish, in Jewish times. Who, give me an example of some of them. An axe. Seven, no, not Simon. The seven sons of Sceva, right? Yeah, they went out. And remember, they're the ones that said, we adjure you by Paul, whom Je- or Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demon said, we know Jesus, we know Paul, we don't know you guys. And they beat him up, stripped him, and threw him out of the house. Um, then he said... But it is, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm casting them out by the Spirit of God, what does that mean? The kingdom of God is here. I am the king. He's trying to get them to understand this. And then he, and he says this, For how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his good, goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
Now, in context, right? We understand the Bible is to be understood in context. In context, what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus actually doing at this point? Who's he plundering? Yeah. The house of Satan. He is he's casting demons out of people. He's doing miracles. He's freeing people from the bondage of, of Satan. So what is this little metaphor saying? And it is what? More powerful than Satan's. Right? And he uses a metaphor. If I'm going to break into some guy's house and he's bigger than me, I've got to incapacitate him or I can't plunder his house. Right? If I'm going to come in, I'm going to rob your house and you're bigger than me, I've got to knock you out, tie you up, something, so I can rob your house. So, therefore, if I am robbing Satan's house, what does that imply about my power? I'm greater than the power of Satan. I can blind Satan. There is nothing here, folks, that says anything about me personally binding the devil or anybody binding the devil for that matter. It is a metaphor. It is an illustration that Christ is using saying, I am plundering Satan's kingdom, therefore I am stronger than him because I'm able to bind him and keep him from preventing me from doing what I'm doing. That's what it means. There's nothing here about binding the devil and all of this kind of stuff. That's made up stuff. It's misunderstood. It's, it's purely taken out of context. And he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not scatter or gather with me scatters. If you're not with me, you're a, against me. So what's that saying about the Pharisees? They're against them. You're scattering abroad. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blaspheme of forgiven people, but the blaspheme against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now that's another confusing passage, but it's really easy if you understand the context. What is the context? What were the Pharisees accusing Christ of doing? He was casting out demons by the power of Satan. Satan. And Christ is actually casting out demons by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. God, right? And he's saying, you know what, guys? You can, you can speak against me, but if you speak against the Holy Spirit, if you attribute what I'm doing in the power of the Holy Spirit, accusing the Holy Spirit of being Satan, you can't be forgiven that. That's the unpardonable sin. And not only in this age, but the age to come. Well, in the Jewish mind, I know you're all not Jews, but if you go back there and you understood the Jewish culture, in the Jewish mind, what was this age? If someone talked to a Jew and said, in this age, religiously, what would they understand? The age they're in. The age to come is what? The the millennium, the kingdom, the, the coming of the Messiah. And Christ is saying, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit by... And what does blaspheme mean? All blasphemy means is to speak evil of. If you attribute what I am doing to the works of Satan, you cannot be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Not only now, but even in the kingdom, you cannot be forgiven that. That is an unpardonable sin. And all this passage is doing here, all, the, all, all you see here is that the Pharisees have accused Christ of doing what he does because he is of the devil... And Christ is saying, I'm doing the works I do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And by saying, I'm doing of Satan, you're speaking evil against the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts you of what? Sin. So if the Holy Spirit doesn't convict you of sin, can you be saved? It's not your question. No, you can't. No, you can't. This is, this is what the binding of the devil is. Folks, there's no binding of the Satan out there. So when somebody says, I'm, I bind the Satan in the name of Jesus, that's, that means nothing. That is irrelevant. You don't bind the devil. Now, let's, let's, let's go on the other hand. Is it okay to ask God to limit Satan? To Yeah, of course it is. It's okay to ask God to overcome Satan. It's okay to pray for deliverance from the evil one. It's okay even in the church to, ask, to pray and ask God that his truth be go forth and that Satan's um, confusion be defeated. That's okay. But to personally bind the devil is not there. You, you understand what I'm trying to get at here. 
Yes, pray that God would limit Satan. Yes, pray that God would deliver you from evil. But don't go around saying, I'm binding the devil and he can't do this. That, that Satan is too powerful for that. By the way, Michael didn't even do that. Let's go there and look at it. Okay? Let's go to Matthew 18. Thanks for bringing that up. I should have put that in there. Matthew 18. Let's, let's go there and let's look and see what Matthew 18 says about this whole thing. 16. Wait a minute. 16? Wait I'm out. Okay, there's one there. Okay, and then there's also the... Um, here's another one here. In Matthew 18, there's another passage about whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Alright, so let's go to 16. This is Peter's great confession, right? Now this, this verse here, this is another one of those passages that's been totally misinterpreted through the centuries. And um, I can't take all of our time to you know, work through it, but I can give you some of the answers if you trust me on it, but you can go find them out for yourself. Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi and asked the disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? This is a decision point. Who do you say I am? Now, this is after Christ had been ministering for many, for a couple years. Um, it's coming down towards the end of his ministry, so he wants the disciples to come clean and say, who do you think I really am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Who's one that said that, by the way? Herod, remember, he thought Jesus was a reincarnation of John the Baptist. Well, some say you're a reincarnation or a resurrected John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Why would they say he's Elijah? Well, Matthew or Malachi 4 speaks about the spirit of Elijah coming. All right. So some say you're of Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or some, some of the other prophets. So there's all kinds of, you know, if you had the buzz in those days and the the talk shows on TV, you know, they'd be having segments on who is Jesus, you know, and you get a panel of experts on there trying to figure him out. And he said, okay, fine. That's what people say. Who do you say I am? How about you? What do you guys think I am? I'm not interested in what the world says I am. What do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, you're Christ, the son of the living God. He was a spokesman. He was the big mouth of the group. All right. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who, who is in heaven revealed it. How did Peter get this great insight? It wasn't his intellect. All right? Where do you understand that Jesus is the Son of God? It's not your brain. I'll tell you that right now. It's not your smartness. Is because the Holy Spirit has revealed that to you. That's how you know. And, and then he says here, and I tell you, Christ is talking to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the Catholic Church has said, okay, there's the first pope. There he starts, right there. Christ instituted the church. Peter's the first pope. And on it goes from there. And they use this to try and prove... Um, apostolic succession of the papacy. All right. Well, if you look at the Greek text underlying that, Christ is saying, Peter, you are a Petros. Petros is a pebble. It's a little stone. That's what Petros is. Petra, remember the city of Petra? Petra is in the mountains, right? Hollowed out a rock. Okay, so you're a Petra. But upon this stone, this bedrock, and what bedrock is that? Jesus says, Christ, upon that bedrock confession, I'm going to build my church, not on you, Peter, personally, but on the confession that you made that I am the Son of God, I am the living God. And you've got to go back to the Greek text to understand the 
the grammar of what is going on here. But Christ is not saying, on Peter, I'm going to build my church. Because Peter, I mean, what has Peter not yet done? Denied him. <laughs> I mean, you pick a bad foundation there, right? So that's not, it's not Peter the person, it's Peter's confession of Christ. That is the bedrock. What is the bedrock foundation on which Christ builds His church? That He is what? The Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter was a pebble. No, because you got to understand the, the Greek words behind this. There's Petros and Lithos. Okay? You know, lithography. You ever hear lithography? Lithos, that's rock. And then there's Petros, which is a small pebble. A little stone. Alright? Peter was not the Lithos. Peter was the Petros. He was the pebble. Christ um, was the foundation. The confession of Christ was the foundation. And then it says this. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Who's the, what's the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, metaphorically, in those days, if someone had a key, what did that mean they had access to? Whatever was locked, right? So if you wanted to go through a door, you had to go get the guy who had the key to get in and get out. What, are the, what, are, what is the way you get into the kingdom of God? As the Messiah. How do you keep out of it? You don't. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The keys of the kingdom of heaven is the acknowledgement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He is what Peter says here. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the idea of binding and loosing there, you've got to go back and understand the rabbinical concept of this because not only is it used here, but it's used in Matthew 18. All right? The idea of binding and loosing is, is a rabbinical concept. If you came and you confessed your sins, then the religious leaders say, your sins are loosed from you. What does it mean that your sins are loosed from you? They were loosing the sins? No, but what did your confession of your sin do? Yeah, it allowed you to be forgiven. If you did not confess your sin and you were not repentant, they could say your sins are bound to you. In what sense are your sins bound to you? Did they bind them to you? No. Because you would not confess your sin, your sins are now bound to you. That's what it says binding and loosing. And you see that in the context of Matthew 18 where it talks about if someone sins against you, take one other. If that doesn't work, take a couple more. If that doesn't work, tell it to the church. For whatever you have bound in earth shall have been bound in heaven. What's the church do there? The church tells the unrepentant person... Your sins are bound to you. you you're, you're in sin. You, 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 you're, you're in bondage to your sin. It, they're not binding the person. They're saying what has already been done in heaven, right? It's already been done in heaven. You're just confirming it here. The same thing holds true. If somebody comes to know the... You know, if you present the gospel and they respond, what happens to their sins? Their sins are loosed. What's that? I have loose being untied. They're not there. If they refuse to repent of their sins, what happens? They are bound in their sin. We even use that term, bound in sin, chains of sin, you know, things like that. That's what's in view here. It's not that Peter said you can bind and loose and all that kind of stuff. That's not what's in view here. What is in view here is that the confession of Christ is that which binds or looses your sins. If you confess Jesus as, as the Messiah... Your sins are loosed. If they're not, they are bound. Okay, so my understanding and John MacArthur does a good job in his Matthew commentary on this to help you understand what's going on. <laughs> All right, well that's good. That's good. She gets a gold star for the class. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Context. You know, we in our bibliography, context, context, context. That is the most important concept. And that, by the way, is the same thing in Matthew 18, where it says, "Where two or three are gathered in my name, 
I'm in the midst of them. That's not a prayer meeting. That is in the context of, of church discipline. If you've got two or three people that come and, and confirm that someone's living in sin, that's what it's talking about there. I am there in the midst of them. I am with you in that discipline process because the goal is to restore, not to kick people out of the church. It is to restore them. And by the way, I know that because I wrote our church's discipline policy. The discipline policy is not to throw people out of the church. The discipline policy is to restore people to the church, those who fall into sin. And that's what is in view there. And Christ is in the midst of two or three people who are trying to do that. Christ is in the midst of them. How many people... How many people you need to pray in order to have Christ there? One. You don't need two or three. You need one. So. Yeah. That's one of the most misunderstood verses in the New Testament. You don't need any. You're by yourself. Christ is there. You know, say, well, we need to get two or three people to agree on this. Well, get two or three people to agree that you need to drive a new Lincoln Continental, and it'll happen. That's not what it's saying. Come on. You know? And, and again, it goes back. Look, all, this is no rocket science here. This is going back. Understand the context of the passage. Understand what is going on, what is in view. And the, the explanation falls out into your lap. Yeah. Right. Yes. And if you go back and you look at the rabbinical writings, the rabbinical literature of that day, binding and loosing was a common theme used. The, the priest would say your sins are bound or your sins are loose, depending on whether you confessed your sin or not. That was a common thing that was. And, and contextually, the people who were there with Christ would understand what he meant. We have to reconstruct the context because we're 2,000 years later. They understood it. They understood what he was saying. Would it also mean, too, that he's saying whatever you do on earth, you're going to have eternal consequences from whatever you do, whether it be bound or you lose, in the next life? It depends. Yeah. You can't change it. In the life to come, you can't change your mind. It's already set because it was set on earth. In a, in a sense, it's there, yeah. And, so, and notice what it said in, in Matthew 18. Whatever you bound on earth shall have been bound. Alright, so you're confirming on earth what's already been confirmed in heaven. And it all goes back to confession. And that's the, that's the common theme between these two passages. If you confess your sin, your sins are loosed. If you do not confess your sin, your sins are bound to you. And you know we talk commonly about chains of sin being bound in sin. You know um, Romans six talks about as being a slave of sin or a slave of Christ, being loosed from your sin, being loosed from you know your your evil life. I mean that's a common theme throughout the Bible, being loosed. And that loosing goes back to do you confess Jesus as Lord? And there's more to that than just say yeah he's Lord. It's understanding who he is, what he does, those kind of things. It's not just a small little thing there. And, and I would really encourage you if, you, if you would like to study this a little better, MacArthur's commentary on Matthew is a wonderful commentary to use. He does a very good job of explaining in the Greek context what this means. And anybody in here can read it and understand it. That's what I love about his commentaries. You don't need to be a Bible scholar to figure out what he's saying. It's clear. And if you're even more confused on that, if you've got a computer, you can go out to gty.org and you can download the sermon on this. There are all the transcripts of all his sermons are out there. And you can find this, the sermon on this and you can get exactly what he preached. And if, you like, if you're a, a CD worm like I am, you can even download the MP3 and play it. So it's not... He, I, he does a very good job of understanding these verses in the context in which they're given. And see, the problem is, with, unfortunately, with a lot of Christians and, and a lot of going on, you can pick a verse, folks. You can pick a verse here and a verse there and you can make them mean. You can sound like you know what you're talking about and that this is from the Bible. I'm quoting a verse from the Bible and you quote some verse. And it has nothing to do with what it is you're, you're talking about. And um, unfortunately, because we're going to go over, we're not going to finish today, but 
the, the sword of the Spirit. See, I plan this and it doesn't work. But that's okay. See, I, the, the beauty of this is I don't get paid to get through this. See? I get paid the same amount of money whether we finish this or not. All right? But, uh, but the whole thing here is when you look at Ephesians where it talks about the spiritual armor, we have one offensive weapon. What is that? The sword of the Spirit. When you think of a sword, what do you think of? What's the image that pops to your mind? Yeah. How big is it? How big is the sword? It's a big thing, right? You know? Well, that's not the word that's used. Um, the, the word for broadsword was the big sword. Is Ramphaya. That's a big, broad sword. This word is Makaira. It's the little dagger. Alright? You ever see a Roman gladiatorial fight in the movies where, you know, they got the little dagger and they got the big sword or whatever? It's the little dagger. The Word of God is a little dagger. Now, how does a little dagger kill you? It pierces. It pierces. And how do you, in the pierce it, what do you got to do? You got to be accurate where it's going to land. You know, broadsword, you can just wail at somebody and hurt them, you know. But a, but a little dagger, you got you got to know where to put that thing in. And that's what the Word of God is. The Word of God is not some broadsword you beat demons with. It's a very precise thing. And, it's, and, and the power of the Word of God is not in just quoting it for quoting its sake, but using specific passages, understanding what those passages mean and using them in the situation that you're in. That's what Christ did when confronted by Satan, right? Matthew 4. He didn't just quote the Scripture. He quoted a specific phrase, a specific verse of Scripture that was used to deal with the temptation at hand. That's, that's great. Uh, Revelation 19, out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. It's much more, that makes much more sense now that it's yeah. a direct, up-close and personal, specific word that's going to make 200 million people fall dead. Yeah. I mean, it, it, is, it is the precision. It's a, it's a precise instrument. It's not some big thing you hack and whack. It's a precise instrument. And, and the word there, the sword of spirit, which is the word of God, the word there is frama, which is saying. It's not word of God as in the Bible of the word of God. It's word of God as in the sayings of Christ. The sayings of the word of God. The specific phrases. And we'll examine this in detail. But, you know, for example, when you're tempted to do a sin... Use a verse relating directly to that sin. That's where the power comes from. And to get that power, you need to understand what the verse means in the context in which it was given. Then it holds power. And that's, that's the problem. You know, I get willies whenever say two or three people are gathered in my names. It's like, ah, if you just knew what the context was, you wouldn't be saying that. Because I don't need two or three. I'm all by myself. I'm okay. Right? I don't need two or three people to agree um, it's like, well, if we don't have two people here in a prayer meeting, God's not here. What do you mean God's not there? That doesn't make any sense. God, of course, is there. All right? So you need... It's, it's within the context. All right? Context is everything. In the Scripture, folks, context is everything. It's everything. Also here, we're told not to pray hedges. What do we mean by praying hedges? I mean, you hear that a lot. Well, I'm going to pray a hedge around me. And it's sort of like, you know, I'm, I want to get out and see the new Star Trek film, but it's sort of like putting the shields up, you know. I'm going to put up my shields and keep Satan from, you know, sending that photon torpedo into me or something. Um, praying hedges. And what they do is they go back to Job many times. The book of Job. So let's go back to Job. And by, by the way, just, just so you all understand, what, what I do here, I'm not doing deep theological rocket science type stuff. All I'm doing is saying, let's understand what does the passage say in the context in which it was written to the culture in which it was listening to it and the meaning falls out. All right, The meaning falls out of the scripture. You don't have to do anything other than that. So let's look at Job. In Job chapter 1, we have an interesting account by the way, Job, the, the, the reason for the book of Job is, is God is proving to Satan that true saving faith is unassailable. The, the, the faith that God gives his own is a faith that will endure. It won't fail. 
which makes me feel good because that means I can't screw it up, right? All right, in verses 1 through 6, we have a a little um, discussion of who Job was. Very wealthy man in those days. In those days, your wealth consisted of your livestock, all right, and, and your servants. This guy was very wealthy. He's one of the most wealthy men in that whole area. Um, and a question is, well, when did Job live? Job lived probably during the time of Abraham, somewhere around in that time frame. And most likely, Job is the first book in the Bible written, as far as age goes. It's probably the first one. So somewhere around 2000 B.C., give or take, is when Job would have lived. And um, he was a godly man. In what sense was he a godly man? Well, he rose every day and offered burnt offerings for his children. How did he know to offer burnt offerings? He did. How did he know that? Where did it come from? No, not come from God. Who's alive? Abraham wasn't alive. He probably wasn't even called yet. Go back and look at the book of Genesis. You know that Abraham died before Shem did? I think it was Shem. It was like two years different, I think. From Noah. Yeah. Job, Job would have known Shem. In fact, Abraham would have known Shem. He could have gone down and talked to Shem. Because um, Shem lived, I'm, not, I'm trying to think here now, 500 years after the flood. Alright, so he would have known um, this was information passed down from Noah. Passed down. And where did Noah get his information? He was in the previous world. His father was Lamech. Lamech was alive when Adam was alive. So Lamech knew Adam. All right? Lamech knew Adam. Noah's father knew Adam. In fact, Noah was only born like a hundred and some years after the death of Adam. Go look at the... It's interesting to look at the chronologies. All right? Yeah, those things you blow through are blah, 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 blah. You know, let's get through that and get on to the good stuff. Look, Abraham, uh, Adam lived 960 years. All right? The flood came at about 1652 from the time that Adam was created. Lamech was born during the time of... I mean, Lamech's like 100 years old, I think, when Adam died. Somewhere around in there. So Lamech knew Adam. So Noah could have talked to his father who knew the first man who ever lived. They knew about sacrifice. They knew what it was all about. That was all passed down. Yeah. I was just the marking about how maybe it has been a little more than a thousand years the earth yep. degenerated so much that God Yeah, think about that. You know, you think about the millennium, but think about that. And think about only two generations or three generations after Noah, you have the Tower of Babel. All right? That shows how wicked man is. All right? But the whole point here is that Job knew this because he got it from Noah via probably his parents. We don't, we don't have the lineage of Job here, but Job was certainly descended from one of them. And uh, he made sacrifices every day just in case his kids committed a sin. All right? And it says here, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Does Satan have access to heaven? Yes, he does. Right now, he does. In what sense does he have access to heaven? He can go there. Now, what does this show about God here? If Satan has access to heaven and Satan is called before God, what does that imply? He's answerable to God and God is in control. Alright, so if there's anything you don't get out of this class, I want you to get one thing out of this entire class. God is in charge of things, ultimately. And Satan does nothing without the permission of God. Nothing. He is helpless unless he gets God's permission. And God has given him a certain amount of freedom and a certain amount of leeway, but he is still answerable to God. And he shows up here in the presence of God. And uh, then the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Now, did he need to know that? No, God knew that, right? He's just trying to get Satan to... Now, we don't know that, but this is why he asked him the question. And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. What does that sound an awful bit like over in the New Testament? Prowling like a roaring lion, right? And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? 
Why do you think he said that? He's setting him up. See, it's all part of God's sovereign plan. And again, you got to go back. What is the book of Job trying to teach us? The book of Job teaches us that those whom God saves, those whom God redeems, have an unassailable, unfailing faith. In spite of what happens to them, in spite of what Satan throws at them, they cannot fail because the faith is from God and not from them. And how God is using Satan to make this point. Sovereignly using Satan to make a point, not only to Satan, but to us as well, right? Because we have the book now. That the faith I give is not an unassailable faith. And this is an interesting thing. If your name came up before the throne of God, what would he say about you? Yeah, look at that loser Schaefer down there. Yeah. Um, but no, he, he, he's saying, look at Job. Look at him. And um, Satan said, well, does Job fear God for no reason? I mean, come on. Have you not put a hedge around him? Okay, here's the hedge. So what do you know about the hedge here? Okay, it protects. All right, who put it there? God put it there. Who didn't know it was there? Job. Job didn't know it was there. In fact, Job doesn't know anything yet. Job's going to find out back in chapter 39 to 41. So he, or 42. Job doesn't know anything at all. This is before Job knows anything what's going on. What does God say? He said, you put a hedge around Job. You protected him. And I can't penetrate that hedge. I can't, I can't go through that hedge. You've prayed... Not you prayed, I'm sorry. You have put, God, a hedge around Job to protect him. And, um, and his house and all that he has on every side. It's all the way around him. You have protected him from me. You've not allowed me to have Adam yet. You have blessed the works of his hands and the possessions have increased in the land. So what is Satan doing? Satan said, well, the reason he loves you, God, the reason he serves you, of course he would. I mean, it's a good deal, right? Look what you've given him. He's wealthy. He's powerful. He's protected. Um, I can't get to him. He's got it all. I mean, what idiot would not want to serve you if they get all of that? And God says, and, he's, and then Satan said, but I'll tell you what, God, but you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Go and touch what he has, God, and see what happens. And then what did God say? Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. Did God do it? Did God stretch out his hand against Job? Well, yes and no. Yes in the sense he permitted, but no in the sense that he did not actually do it. All right? And what did Satan do? Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and in the next few verses we find out what happened, right? Within a day, Job was reduced to nothing but himself and his wife. And some said it would have been good to get rid of the wife too later on. But anyways. <laughs> but he's reduced to nothing within a very short period of time. What do we find Satan doing? Satan brings a whirlwind. Can Satan cause natural disasters? Yeah, he brings a whirlwind, right? You, he, um, Job's flocks are stolen by some other tribes. I mean, he, he loses it all. Is Satan behind those catastrophes? Of course he is. We know it because we read in it here. All right. That doesn't mean Satan is behind every tornado and every hurricane, but Satan can cause these kind of things. And Satan reduced Job to nothing in a very short period of time. And, what did, and, and to do that, what did God need to do? Remove the hedge. Allow Satan to go after Job. All right. And then, of course, we realize that that didn't work, right? Because in chapter 2... Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. Again, God is in charge. All right. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. Same answer, right? And the Lord said to Job, If you consider my servant Job, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you have incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Hey, Satan, it didn't work. You took everything away and what happened? He's still blameless and upright and fears God. Question. Now, is that God's confidence in Job's faith or his already? 
The former. God, here's the point, folks. You know, understand this. If you are born again, your faith does not come from you. It is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. The faith is the gift of God. The faith I have to believe God is a faith that is not derived from me. It's not my faith. It's not of my origin. If it were, what would happen to it? It would never last. All right? My faith would not work. It is a gift of God. God grants me the faith to believe. And that faith is an, is an unfailing faith because it's not mine. All right? I may go through the ringer. I may get, be pounded from one end of the world to the other, but it won't fail because it's not my faith. I can falter. Sometimes we can doubt, can't we? And we can be under pressure. But in the end, and that's the point, in the end, it will not fail. Did Job have questions about God through his trials? Absolutely. Obviously he did. He said, the heavens are like brass. I pray and, and my, my prayer gets bounced back at me. Of course he, saw, he, he had... He, yeah, big time. More than we would probably even understand ourselves. But in the end, his faith did not fail because it was not of his origin. All right? Yes. Right. Right. It was, it was the faith that God granted him. And that's what God is trying to show Satan. And what's Satan doing? Well, if you take away his possessions, he'll curse you. Well, I'll tell you what. And then what's he do now? Well, touch his body and we'll see what happens. Touch him physically. We'll find out just how faithful he is. Right. And by the way, if anything, this, this book here should forever put to bed the notion that God wants every Christian healthy, wealthy, and wise. There may be periods of time when God does not want you healthy, wealthy, and wise. I shouldn't put the wise in there. Healthy and wealthy. God doesn't want you healthy and wealthy because God had a purpose in this, a purpose that transcended Job's view of the world. All right? No. Right. 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 And you can't be totally dependent on God and dependent on your own resources doesn't work. And what God did is God allowed Satan to take away all his possessions. And now here's what it says here. Um, and Satan answered God, the Lord, and said, Skin for skin, all that, a man, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Is that a true statement? Yeah, look how many, much money people spend to stay alive, right? But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. Bring disease. See what happens. The, okay. The stuff and the health, bad enough, but his babies got taken away. Mm-hmm. I mean, now there's the biggest test of faith of all. Yeah. You can make me sick if you choose to. I'll try to have enough faith to, to keep on keeping on. You can take my stuff away and I can live in a cardboard box. Okay, you have your reasons. I'll trust you. My kids, now let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> Look what Job went through. I mean, that's a good point. He lost his family. He lost his kids. You say, well, you know, why would God allow that? Why does God do anything? You're going to have to ask God yourself. Don't ask me. I don't know the answer for him. Right, but God is sovereign. And by the way, God has a right to take life, doesn't He? Does God owe anybody any life? No. Alright, so you don't need to go there. You know, well, God, they deserve to live. No, they didn't deserve to live. Nobody deserves to live. And how do we know that Job's children weren't believers anyways? We don't know that. Alright. And if they were believers, where are they at? Heaven. So heaven, earth, heaven, earth. Okay, I'll take heaven. Alright. Um, but the whole point here is, is God allowed Satan to do this. I mean, he, Job went through the worst. And, and again, this is a model. It's not that God does this to everybody, right? right. But this is a model. This is, this, is, this is God's trying to prove something here very clear. 
the worst case scenario. And he said, stretch out his uh, hand, touch his bone in his flesh and he'll curse you to your face. And God said, behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. Now, if Satan had perfect freedom to do anything he could to you other than kill you, how miserable would you be? Very. We get some description of it here. He was covered with boils. He scraped them with a broken piece of pottery. That's gross. He was a mess. So messy that when his friends showed up, they couldn't speak for seven days. I mean, this is, this is bad. This is bad. And, and when you look at this, you need to understand what, what's going on here. Well, when they talk about hedges, the hedge is from God. God puts up the hedges and God lets the hedges go down. All right? Now, when we look at this um, in the New Testament and we pray, what are we, where are we to pray? The Lord delivers from the evil one. Now, what if we, commit, what if we fall into sin? What if we, as believers, become rebellious and we, we, um, we start engaging in sin? What happens to God's protection? It can be removed for what reason? Discipline, right? What's, what's Hebrews 12 say? Those whom the Lord loves, He chastens. He disciplines. He'll discipline us. But God is the one who puts the hedge up and hedge down, not me. I don't walk around saying, I'm going to pray a hedge and put the shields up. It doesn't work that way. I can ask God to protect me, right? And I should do that. We should ask God to protect us. We should ask God to keep us from evil. But we don't put the, it up. So, can we pray for the hedge? I mean, right there it says we're never taught. I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't pray for a hedge. I would pray for God's protection. That's what it tells me to pray for. I mean, that's probably what it is underneath. But pray for God's protection. But, but a hedge is not some magic shield that I can, in and of my own thing, raise and lower at will. This is something that God puts there. And by the way, you understand something. If, if we had a perfect spiritual vision, do you understand that God has a hedge around all of us in this room at this point? God's protecting all of us from Satan in a very real sense. And I'm thankful God that the hedge is there, that Satan can only go so far and no further. But God has him on a leash. God has him on a rope. He can't do all that he wants to do. And the book of Job says that God will allow Satan to do certain things to believers in order to fulfill God's eternal purposes. When this was all said and done, was there a benefit to Job? Yeah, Job said, I've heard of you, but now I've seen you. I know you. I heard about you. I see it. We have 66 books in the Bible instead of 65, right? We see how God protects those that are His own. We see how God's faith is an unfailing faith and we see how Satan, in spite of all that Satan does, he can't win. It's got to be frustrating. Yeah, God take away His wealth. That didn't work. Take away His health. That doesn't work. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren, Right? Because what was Satan's intimation here about Job? Yeah, right. The only reason Job serves you, God, is because of what he gets out of the deal. Take that away and he's not going to serve you. He's going to hate you. Folks, you know, God puts up the hedge. God protects us. And, and you know, just because we can't personally bind Satan, we can't personally pray individual hedges of protection, doesn't mean we should not pray that Satan's efforts be thwarted. We should not pray that God will protect us. And it's okay, by the way, for you to pray that God will protect your children and your family and your spouse and your, the, your relatives. And there's nothing... That's what we're supposed to do. Ask God to protect us. Because we can't protect ourselves. We don't know what Satan is up to. And there's nothing magical about this. It's just praying for God to, to do that. We should be doing that. All of us. We should be praying this ourselves. Any, any comments? Or we'll, we'll stop here five minutes early, four minutes early. We won't get used to it, but...
and I just feel, you know, I can understand what you're going through because I've been through cancer twice. I've been through heart attack and stroke and lived a couple things like that. But my one thing that has preserved me in all of this is my faith and heart. And I just wrote a couple of things and I, I gave her first job by 2013. And because I just wanted to witness that here she is to be going to death and she almost died. Yeah. And that faith is not your faith, it's the faith that God gave us. And you know, I I, I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in that because often I think, you know, if I was really put to the test, would I deny the Lord? You know, and and it, you know, admittedly if it was my faith, yeah. Yep, I failed. You know, I'm not... And that, by the way, that was Peter's problem, right? Everybody will deny you, but not me. And Christ is basically telling Peter, no, that faith doesn't work, Peter. Your faith is not going to make it. And when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. When you get the right kind of faith, now you'll, it'll work. But your faith will fail every time. We, we just don't have it. All right, well, my plan went awry. We won't get through the spiritual armor. We'll do that next week. But nevertheless, we will get through it. And we'll be done next week. So, all right. So let's close in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this day that we've had to study Your Word. And thank You that You protect us, Father. I, I think, you know, if we all understood in a real sense what You have already done in Your protection, we'd be awed. We don't really see that a lot of times, Father. We live in a world that we just see with our eyes and we just don't understand what's going on around us. But we thank You that You protect us. And we pray, Father, You would protect us from the evil one. Don't let us fall into temptation and and dishonor Your name and fall into sin. Give us protection, Father. And we just thank You for Your Word and for the faith that You've granted to us that will never fail. In Christ's name, Amen.